For everyone else, if you wouldn't mind, grab your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, we will be starting in verse 32, we'll go down through the, through the end of the chapter, verse 43, Acts chapter 9. Let me just say real quick while you guys turn there, I, um, I think this often, but uh, I think it's worth saying every so often that uh, I just really enjoy as I sit up here on the front row and, and get to hear you, the congregation, sing praises to the Lord. It's, um, as much as I enjoy hearing various soundtracks and bands and, and worship leaders, uh, there is something about hearing my brothers and sisters in Christ that I am with on a daily basis that I know well sing and recite the truths of the gospel and song. And so um, you might not think that your voice is all that beautiful. You might not think that uh, you harmonize well, whatever the case may be. But let me just say, as someone who, uh, who sits up here on the front row week after week, um, you sound amazing as you worship the Lord. And so uh, I encourage you to keep doing so, uh, regardless of whatever thoughts might be in your mind otherwise. Um, Acts chapter 9 is where we're going to be today. Acts chapter 9, we'll start in verse 32. If you would, stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 9, 32 and following. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man, man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Christ Jesus heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. 30, 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the windows, all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand. And raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray today that you would guide us. You would direct us as we study your word. I pray that you would speak to us today through your word as you have so inspired Luke to write for us here in the book of Acts. That Lord, today we would hear and receive this glorious message, this glorious picture found in the story of redemption. And that we might glory and worship you for what it is that you have done. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I am curious to know <clears throat> if there are any 
kindred spirits in here with me. And so I'm going to ask this question and just uh, feel free to shout out the answer. What comes to your mind when I say the word Sam's Club? Costco? Hot dogs? Sushi? Amazing pizza? Bulk? Whenever I think of Sam's Club, and apparently no one else thinks this way, I think free samples. For my whole life, it has been just my favorite part about going to Sam's Club. Something that sets Sam's Club, in my mind, growing up as a kid especially, sets Sam's Club apart from all the other stores, all the other grocery stores and, and box items that were out there because I knew that when we went to Sam's Club, if we went during the right times, I was going to get to try out all kinds of different samples. It was, like a, it was like a sample scavenger hunt, walking around the store. Oh, I see another little booth over there. Let's go see what they've got. Let's see what it is. See what it is. Uh, and then it might be sushi, and I'd be like, yeah, let's see what the next one's got. Uh, there are chicken tenders. That's what I want. Go for those. Get some of that. And that was my favorite part of going to Sam's Club. I could go to Sam's Club as a, as a teenager with an empty stomach and leave completely full and having paid nothing other than my mom's yearly subscription. It was fantastic. It was fantastic. And people can argue the point if they want, but that is clearly a model that works. And I say that it's a model that works because if it did not work, Sam's Club would not do it. If the model of giving out free samples of these food items or whatever the thing might be in order to get you to buy it, if it was ineffective and they were simply giving away free food and seeing no benefit from it and seeing no increase in the revenue from it, I guarantee you they would not do it. They'd be done with it because that's just how businesses work. They don't give away free things for nothing. It's never free, really, is, is the moral of that story. But it works. As they give out free samples, what happens? You taste this chicken tender. You've eaten frozen chicken tenders before, and it's probably exactly like all those, but whatever sort of peanut oil or, or delicious stuff they're frying it in today, you have to have a box of that chicken tender, don't you? That's the way it works. They get you that taste, and you just got to have it. You got to get some more. You go and buy some, and that's how it works. In our story today, we have really, I think, it really, one of those sort of instances in the scriptures that as a pastor, it's always fun for me to come and preach. Because these stories that we have for us in the scriptures today, here in the book of Acts, are stories that largely cause us to stop and be amazed and glory as what we see demonstrated here in these stories is a taste of what is to come for believers. What we see in these stories, as we've already read, as we see a, a man healed and a woman raised from the dead, we are seeing a taste, a sample, a preview of what is to come in Christ Jesus for all who believe. And it's a joy for us. One might be tempted to read these passages. You recall last week and in last, the last few weeks, we were coming out of one of the most Amazing conversion stories ever, the conversion of Saul in the book of Acts. For, for a couple chapters, we were hearing about Saul and his conversion. And what we know is to come here in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 10, another amazing and sort of, sort of big picture story that we see in the book of Acts with the story of the vision of Peter. 
But in between those, we have these two stories. These, what could be mistaken for filler, in between these two stories. And so we need to be careful not to, not to gloss over these stories too quickly, for they, they're short, but they are filled with all kinds of reasons for us to glory and celebrate and praise the Lord. Indeed, we see that these are sort of transitional passages, for they direct our focus away from, from Saul, where we have been, and back onto Peter, as we now have, have shifted from Saul back to Peter again, and what the Lord is doing through him. But these passages also give us a great portrait of what Christ is accomplishing in the world. What we see in these passages is a continuation of the mission of Christ. Him fulfilling his mission and doing so through his church filled by the Holy Spirit. The instances recorded for us here in Acts give us an opportunity and an occasion for celebrating and glorying in Christ and the power that he has to accomplish his mission and that of the church. And so that is what we come to this text here today to do. And it's, it, it's my mission, my goal today, that you would leave today, if nothing else, glorying and praising Jesus Christ for his power to accomplish his work. And as we see here today, what we are going to, to get today from the book of Acts is a, a taste, a sampling of what is to come for believers. And we see it in two stories. The first is a short story. It's in verses 32 through 35, and it is the healing of Aeneas. Here we meet this man in verse 32 through 35, a man named Aeneas, who we learn is confined to his bed, having been paralyzed for a total of eight years. That's a long time to be paralyzed. That's a long enough time that hope of ever not being paralyzed, at least here on this earth, has probably just about faded for this man. After eight years, you would expect that he has come to realize that this is his lot in life. And yet, as we see from our story today, the Lord has other plans. This is such a short story, and Luke does not indulge the details that aren't relevant. As we see in our story here, we don't know much about Aeneas. We know that his name is Aeneas, that he's been bedridden for eight years. And we know that now the Lord has decided in his grace and his mercy to heal him, to free him from this affliction, in a sense to free him from his bondage to this bed. And doesn't this story, short as it might be, where Peter finds this man and gets straight to the point, there may have been more that happened, I'm sure there probably was, but for Luke, the, the meat of the story, the only part of the story that matters for his hearers is that Peter meets this man, and then he goes right up to him and says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately, he rose. Very short story, very to the point as we see it. But what we also notice about the story, I hope you would pick up on this, is that this, short, this story sounds very familiar, doesn't it? It's one that we've seen repeated in all three of the synoptic gospels. In Mark chapter 2, for example, in one of those places, 
The story is told of a man who is paralyzed. And he has four friends, doesn't he? And these friends come and they, they bring this man to Jesus who is in this house. And there are people all around the house. So full is this house that they are unable to get the man inside. And so these four friends, what do they do? They take him up to the roof. They dig a hole through the roof and lower their friend into Jesus so that he might be healed. And what does Jesus say? Take up your bed and walk, doesn't he? Very similar language to what we hear Peter saying here. Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. <clears throat> the idea of making your bed carries with it the same connotation. The, the idea of the implication could be that this man is at home, and so, so Peter doesn't say, take your bed home. But just as Jesus told the man who was lowered down through the roof to rise, take up your bed, and walk, Peter is telling this man here, rise, make your bed, gather up your bed, fix it up. Why? Because you no longer need it. Christ has healed you. Your legs are healed. You no longer need this bed. It's time to make it. It's time to put it away where it needs to go until it's time to sleep again. You don't need it between now and then. Healing has been accomplished for this man. This bed, which represented his bondage, which represented his lot in life, sad as it was, was now the object that Peter told him, wrap this thing up. You no longer need it. No longer are you bound by this bed, but this bed is bound by you. But notice something. There are some differences between this story and the story of Jesus, right? Who does the actual healing in this story? Peter's there. Peter is used by God, certainly. But what does Peter say? Verse 34, Jesus Christ heals you. Peter never took credit, never thought to, to claim that this healing was by his hand, but like all good servants of Christ will do, said, Jesus Christ has healed you. It may have been Peter's hands. Peter may have been the instrument that the Lord used, but even Peter knows that it is only through Christ Jesus that this kind of healing can be accomplished. And that in Christ Jesus, this is the kind of healing that will be accomplished. Peter was his instrument, but it was Jesus who does the healing. And this is an important message for us to realize. For each and every one of us ought to be like Peter and be used as an instrument for Christ. But like Peter, each and every one of us, as we are used by Christ, needs to be quick and ready and active to point other people to Christ. You know, there was a group uh, back in, I think, the, the, the 1600s. Uh, a group that called themselves the Order of the Mustard Seed. This is a very fascinating group of Christians who, who made it their mission to do as much in the way of missions and evangelism and charity as they possibly could. But as much as they possibly could to keep it unknown who they were. Keep it unknown so that no glory would come to them. But that a part of what their mission was was more than just doing these things, but seeking to as much as they possibly could. It was a part of their creed. 
to put all of the praise, all of the credit, and all of the glory to God alone. There's a, maybe there's a reason you've never heard of the order of the mustard seed. That was kind of their task, right? Kind of their intention, kind of their mission. That they would do the work of missions and evangelism and charity, and yet no one would know their name. Why? Because they knew full well that their name didn't matter. Didn't matter who the instrument was that was being used. What mattered was the God who was using them. In the same way, you would never have surgery and then write a, a sweet thank you note to the scalpel that cut you open or the, or the pliers that, that pulled the things out or whatever the case may be. Because those are simply instruments being used by the doctor, by the physician. He is the one who has the ability to do surgery. In the same way, it ought to be our mission, our goal, like Peter, to every opportunity we have be used by God as an instrument, but to quickly point to him as the author of all good things. To let our pride put, be put aside, let ourselves be cast aside so that Christ might be glorified in us. Jesus alone deserves the glory for these miraculous works being done. <clears throat> Notice the order of events here in this healing as well. First, this man was healed, as we know, by Jesus Christ. And then what happened? After his healing, then the command was given and he was able to obey it. The command to what? Rise and make your bed. This also has a parallel in the conversion of sinners. You see, when we think about the absolute necessity of following Christ, indeed, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be converted is to be a follower of Christ. We are called by Christ to follow him. As he says, even take up your cross daily and follow me. But what we also recognize that until we are healed in our very being, in our very soul, we are unable to follow Christ. We are unable to obey the command upon us to follow him, to live according to what he has called us to. But once the Holy Spirit has entered in, once the Holy Spirit has healed, renewed us in Christ Jesus, we are given the command to follow him, and for the first time ever, we are given the actual ability to obey the command and to follow Christ. Think about how silly, not to mention downright cruel it would have been for Peter, knowing full well this man's inability to have told him, rise and make your bed, when the man was utterly unable. It would have made no sense. And indeed, it would have been, in a way, cruel to this man to treat him that way. Which is why Peter knew full well that until this man was healed by God, the command was unable to be followed. To make the point even more clearly, the Lord did more than just restore this man's ability to walk. Think about this. The man was unable to walk for eight years. What happens to your muscles in eight years after laying on a bed and doing nothing for eight years? They completely waste away, don't they? They atrophy. They don't work anymore. After eight years of laying in this bed, 
This man's muscles must have been nil. He would have required weeks upon weeks upon weeks of physical therapy just in order to regain the strength to walk again, even if the ability had been restored. What we see in this healing is that not only is the man's ability to walk restored, but the Lord also restores his strength to walk as well. After eight years of being stuck in this bed, the Lord not only gives him his ability to walk back, but gives him the strength necessary to do it. This was a full and a complete restoration of this man's ability to walk. Not only fixing the problem that was there, but also filling him with the power and the strength to walk and to obey the command that Peter had given him. In the same way, God doesn't simply open our eyes to see the law of God rightly, to where we understand that we have sinned and to where we understand that we have failed to live up to the law and understand that that is the standard of God's righteousness and understand that even as Christians, we are called to obey the law. God does not stop there and opening up our eyes to that. But what has he also done? For believers, for the first time ever, when you come to faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit indwells you, you are not only given a realization of your need to obey the law, you are given the ability to do it. The ability to obey the law of God and to do it rightly. Now that doesn't mean perfectly, does it? Not a one of us in here obeys God's law perfectly. Even though we might be indwelt with the Holy Spirit, we do not obey the law of God perfectly. That's why we confess our sin as a group each and every week. Because we know that we still fail and we know that we still fall short. But it is true that for the first time, as believers, we are now able to obey the law of God rightly. God does not simply open our eyes to the law. He does not simply fix the problem, but he also gives us the strength to walk in him and to follow him. It's a beautiful picture of healing that we see, a picture that has all kinds of parallel in salvation. Even more so, though, in the next story that we see in verse 36 through 43, we see the story of the raising of Dorcas. Last week, we talked a little bit about the, the two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua. And if those weren't good enough suggestions for like baby girl names, I would put forward Dorcas, maybe, if you're going to have a, a baby girl sometime soon as potential names to think about. If me and my wife don't steal it first when we get pregnant again. Uh, if not, you guys can have it. Dorcas means gazelle. We know that it's the Greek word for gazelle. But what we see in this picture of Dorcas is something like the healing of Aeneas, and yet to a much further degree. As if the situation for Aeneas wasn't dramatic enough for the Lord to demonstrate his power, we now have a woman who is not just paralyzed, who is not just ill, who is not just sick, but a woman who is completely and utterly dead, lifeless. This woman, Tabitha, or Dorcas, has been found dead. Look at what we read of the first, in the first couple verses here of this woman. The Bible tells us, verse 36, Now there was in Joppa a disciple, that's something to consider first of all, 
But this woman was called a disciple. The Bible makes a point to, to recognize this is not just some woman, but re- this was a disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. And then what, is, what does verse 36 say? She was full of good works and acts of charity. The NASB says, verse 36, a little bit differently. It says that this woman was excelling in acts of kindness and charity, which she did habitually, which she was continually doing. She was in the habit of constantly doing good for others, constantly pouring out herself herself for the sake of others. And we learn from the context of the story that this is especially true of her care for the widows among them. That after she became ill and died and and Peter comes, what do we see in verse 39? Peter rose and went with them and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. What a beautiful scene this is. As Peter is has come to this place. It's beautiful yet sad, isn't it? Where it's, it, it's a tragedy. And it fills the, the people with grief to see that this sister in Christ, one who was so filled with the Holy Spirit, so cared for other people around her, has now died. And the church has felt this loss. The church, likely a very small community here in Joppa, has been hit by the death of this most beloved sister in Christ and all these widows who had benefited from her ministry, who had been blessed by her and and been been touched by the Lord in the life of Tabitha. Now we're we're showing Peter, remembering, reminiscing to one another, look what she has done. Look, she made me this tunic. This is a woman who cared for those around her, especially the ones that the Lord cared for. When we read in James, right, that, That religion that the Lord finds as pure and faultless is that we care for who? Orphans and widows in their distress. This woman was literally embodying the grace of Jesus Christ as she cared for those in need around her. And here we have this scene of Peter among all these widows, imploring him, weeping, and declaring the works that this woman had done. And as much as it is a sad thing, It's also something of a glorious thing too, isn't it? To see the testimony of this woman's life who it seems perhaps died very young. This story reminds me of the story of when my dad passed away. Some of you who maybe don't don't know me real well, probably never heard this story, but my dad died when I was 12 years old. And at 12 years old, there's a lot of things about that, that whole time in my life that are, that are somewhat blurry, that are somewhat foggy. But one thing that I will always remember was being at the funeral home during my dad's visitation, a visitation that, that was intended to last for about three or four hours, but that ended up lasting for a total of about eight hours because the line of people that was there to see my dad, and I say this not to brag about my family or, or, or us or anything like that, but to say the testimony of who my dad was and the way he was loved by people and the way he loved people. 
If you knew my dad, you knew that he was a, a fun-loving, a joyful guy, a guy who, who, like Dorcas, was always happy to go and care for those in need, particularly those who were most vulnerable, those who needed help. I remember one time when I was a, a young boy, I was about nine years old, and I was with my dad. He was watching over us, and, and he got a call from some guy, some guy who I had no idea who he was. He didn't go to our church. He didn't, uh, didn't come to, he wasn't in our family. He didn't work with my dad. But somehow this guy had gotten my dad's number and was told, hey, I think this guy could probably help you out. Because this man was, was having all kinds of electrical problems at his house. And his whole electrical system had failed. And my dad was an electrician. And so my dad, also knowing very little about this man, except that he had no money to hire an electrician, packed me up and he said, hey, we're going to go over and help this guy out. And as a nine-year-old boy, I thought, this is the most boring thing ever, sitting at this stranger's house in the dark while my dad fixes this guy's electricity. And yet, it was that kind of spirit, that kind of generosity, that kind of charity that caused people to love my dad to the point that the line to, to literally just to wait in line in order to get up and pay condolences to my mother and to the family wrapped all the way through Alexander East Funeral Home to where whether they had it planned or wanted to or not, they were not able to have any other viewings in the building at that time because the line of people literally lasted three hours. People came and stood and waited three hours because of how much my dad meant to them because of the impact that he had had. And I remember those times because for me, that was not a day of sorrow. There was plenty of sorrow around those days. But for that day, it was a day to reminisce. It was a day to consider all that my dad had done, to tell stories with people who knew him. Much like these widows, who though sorrow was there, though they were weeping, though they felt grief, took joy in remembering what it is that this woman had done, the life that she had lived and how she was used by God. What a testimony this was to the life and faithfulness of this sister, Tabitha. What a way to live too, isn't it? That we would live in a way that when we die, that the people who are there would reminisce and say, look at what he has done for me. Look at what she, and remember the way she loved and cared for other people. Not to mention, I think this somewhat hits without saying, there's no greater picture of the effects of the fall than this, particularly when it is a sister in Christ like this who has been taken, who has died. We wonder sometimes, don't we, why it is that the people who seem to most love the Lord, who seem to care most for others, who seem to be living their lives, being poured out for the name of Christ and for other people are the ones that so often die young. We hear stories like this and it gives us an understanding of why even the people of God have need of, of lament and crying out to God. Like we see the psalmists write so often. Like in Psalm 44, 23 through 24, the psalmist says this, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. 
Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget your affliction and and oppression? We read the psalmist and we say, man, how could the psalmist say something like this? And yet we see this as inspired scripture written as directed by the Holy Spirit and given to us in the canon. We see and we, we feel the weight of, of where these psalms matter, where these psalms come in and give us a voice of lament when we see a, a situation like this of a sister or brother in Christ who has died and left us with grief. In healing events like this, though, we also see the truth of the message of the gospel verified and demonstrated. For indeed, what happens? Peter comes in, he puts them all outside. He kneels down, prays, turns to the body and says, Tabitha, arise. And in his grace and in his mercy, once again, the Lord acts and raises this one from the dead, undoing death itself in the life of Tabitha, restoring to her life and vitality. And in this, what do we see? We see the gospel message verified, not only verified, but demonstrated. For indeed, church family, going from death to life is exactly what happens in the life of a believer. That we all have found ourselves dead in our sins and trespasses, unable to do anything to save ourselves, and yet the the Lord has intervened to save us. Not just to save us, but to bring us to life, for we were dead. Isaac Watts, and uh, one of the most well-known Christmas songs of all time, but one that the, many of the words are sometimes changed or skipped over to much shame, I think. He writes in the song, Joy to the World, in the third verse, <clears throat> No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. As far as the curse is found, so Christ has come to make his blessings known and undo the curse. Here we see a taste, a preview of what is to come for all God's people by the power of of Christ our Redeemer. As far as the curse is found, whatever part of creation has been touched by sin, has been touched by the curse, affected whether it be our lives, whether it be our relationships, whether it be our health, whatever it might be, each and every one of those things, his blessings have come to extend over and to touch. Now, this does not mean that we are guaranteed any sort of of revival from the dead, that we are guaranteed physical healing here in this life. We know that that's not true. Practice alone, not to mention a firm testimony of the scriptures, teaches us that that's not true. But what we do know is that regardless of whether or not we experience healing here in this life, we know that healing is to come for all God's people. The Bible is clear that these miracles 
were instrumental in bringing many to faith in Christ. And let's not forget that. That by means of these miracles, this, this taste, if you will, of the kingdom of heaven, this sample of what is to come was used by God instrumentally to bring many into the fold. So that this taste, as it was demonstrated here in this story, in both these stories, will ultimately lead to multitudes and multitudes experiencing the fulfillment of these things in Christ Jesus. We sometimes, I think, in, in some of our circles, over, under, or we, we underplay the value of miracles in the New Testament. But the Lord used these in an instrumental way to bring people to faith in Christ. Their faith was not built on Peter's miracles. Their faith was rooted in, founded in Christ, recognizing that he had the power to accomplish these things. And if he could accomplish it for Tabitha, for Aeneas, we have reason to believe and trust that he's going to accomplish it for all his people one day. <clears throat> Finally, in verse 43, at the end of our text, we see one little sentence that could be easily glossed over. Verse 43, he stayed in Joppa for many days with one, Simon the Tanner. <clears throat> Here's an interesting fact about tanners. I don't know if you know this. Animals have to be dead before you can tan their hides. And if you're at all familiar with rabbinic tradition in Jewish culture, what does that mean for a tanner? It means that he's unclean, isn't it? It means that because he is touching a dead animal, for indeed all dead things were considered to be unclean, he too was then made unclean. Though people all around Israel needed tanners to make many of their goods, even the walls of the tabernacle involved tanned hides, we see that this job in and of itself was considered by the Jews to be unclean, dirty. And therefore to be a tanner was to essentially take on ridicule, to take on scorn. It was like being a, a shepherd or a tax collector or even like being a Gentile, one who is unclean. The point that we are intended to see, I think, in this short little verse is that Jesus' work and his ministry had not ceased at his death nor at his ascension, but it continued through the work of his apostles and it continues through his church today. Remember in the Gospels, when Jesus would come in contact with one who was considered to be unclean, and he regularly brought that kind of connection, that kind of situation upon himself, didn't he? He made it a habit of going to and addressing the people who were unclean. But rather than being made unclean himself, as the Jews taught, didn't they? That was the teaching of the Jews, that if you, if you came into contact with one of these things or, or people or, or items that was considered to be unclean, you were then made unclean. The filth was transferred to you, and you were now unclean in need of cleansing. What happened with Jesus, though? When Jesus came into contact with people who were unclean, Rather than he himself being made unclean, those things and those people were made clean. 
This is the effect that Christ has on the curse. We see in the stories of Jesus, a woman with a discharge of blood, unclean, touches Jesus. What happens? Jesus is not then made unclean. The woman is made whole. And she is made right. Jesus, when he would hang out with tax collectors, what happened? Think about Zacchaeus. Was Jesus corrupted by entering into the house of Zacchaeus? Something that the Jews would never have done? No, what happened? Zacchaeus came to faith in Christ and believed. When Jesus came into contact with lepers, which he wasn't afraid of, what were lepers? Unclean. They have to be outside the camp. Don't touch them. Don't go near them. Don't talk to them. They are unclean. Unless you want to be made unclean. There is hardly a more glaring example of what it looks like to be unclean than that of a leper. And yet Jesus, what does he do with lepers? He doesn't get leprosy. He cleanses it. Ten at a time sometimes. Jesus was in his ministry always in the habit, not of being made unclean by the things around him, but by making those things clean. By restoring the curse. By undoing what sin had done. And we see that this effect continues now by Christ through his church. As Peter and the church are now coming into contact with those who are considered traditionally to be unclean, like Simon the Tanner. And yet what we see is that it is by coming and living with this man, and it is from this house that Peter is going to receive that great revelation where the Lord says, do not call anything unclean, which I have made clean. Simon, and as we will see, the Gentiles are no longer unclean, but by the work of Christ are made clean, as all sinners are. Brothers and sisters, this passage really does give us, it gives us a preview, a taste of heaven and what it will be like, as well as it shows us the means by which we are brought in. It is through the work of Jesus Christ, the very work that we can see continue here in the apostles in Acts. The work of restoring life, of making right what is broken, of making clean what is unclean. It is a work that the Lord now continues to do through his church. But I'll tell you what one of the best part is about these two pictures and both of these pictures the best part of both of these two pictures of redemption is what we see true about both of these people. One who is healed of, of being paralyzed, one who is literally brought back to life, is that these are people who are helpless. They can do nothing in their estate to move them even an ounce towards restoration. How is this work accomplished? It's a work that is accomplished solely by Christ. Like salvation, like redemption, it is a work done to us. <clears throat> Not a work that we do or that we contribute to. And what a relief and glory that is for us to know that there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. 
but that in Christ the work has been accomplished. And to know that as we go forth into the world today and continue to carry on the task that God has given to his church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, following the orders that Christ has given us, we know that it is not up to us to save. It is not up to us to make clean what is unclean. It is not up to us to bring healing. It is done by Christ. We just get to be used as his instruments. And that's a good place to be. Because an instrument can do nothing unless the Lord works. But it also means that an instrument can be used mightily if the Lord chooses to work. Church family, the Lord has chosen to work and he's chosen to do so through his church. Not just through the apostles here in Acts, but through the church even today to accomplish his mission. <coughs> Excuse me. To bring sight to the blind. To bring life where there was death. This was the mission of Jesus Christ. The kind of thing he did. Consider blind Bartimaeus. <clears throat> who could do nothing but to cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. He was helpless. He was blind. He was stuck. But Christ was able to intervene and bring sight where there was blindness. Consider Lazarus, who was dead in the grave, not just, not just for a few minutes, minutes, but for days. And yet Jesus called him out of the grave, brought life where there was death. And church family, this is what God is continuing to do and what we will see ultimately fulfilled in the end. We can think and just look to Revelation chapter 21, verses three through four, and see the fulfillment of all these things. The things which we now see a taste of, a preview of here in these stories, we see a fulfillment of in Revelation 21, three through four. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Church family, let us take hope. Let us have joy, even as we live here in this day and age where those former things are not completely passed away. We still have Pain, tears, death, crying, mourning. But as the Bible says, as one of the songs that we sing reminds us, though we mourn and though we grieve our losses, we do not grieve in vain. For we, unlike the world, have a hope. And it is found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.